like in anything in life and investing is the same way. If you're doing what everyone else is doing, you're probably doing it wrong. You know, like you need to be thinking differently. That's where the value is added, whether you're at a job, like if you're putting the same spreadsheet together, plugging the same numbers, like you're not going to get the promotion. You have to think differently and see what else is going on around the periphery and go that way. Sunita Rao is a former professional athlete and Olympian, as in played at the Olympics, business person and real estate investor. Sunita turned pro in tennis at 14 and represented India in international tournaments. She ranked in the top 200 in the entire world and also played at the Beijing Olympics before retiring from tennis in 2009 at the age of 23 after almost a decade of playing. Sunitha retired from tennis with a sixth grade education and just a sense of wanted something different. She then went back to school to a community college first and then transferred to Babson College, putting herself through school, working multiple jobs while studying to get her bachelor's degree and then an MBA from Villanova University. After landing her first corporate position, she realized she couldn't rely solely on her salary to achieve the financial freedom she wanted. She then started exploring real estate investing. Sunisa continued to work in the corporate financial planning world across the defense industry, biopharma, the mortgage industry for years while growing her real estate business. She acquired her first property in 2018 and has since created the Griffiths Property Group, building a portfolio of short-term rentals as well as long-term rentals and buy-and-hold properties. Sunitha is the Chief Sanity Officer, which is sort of a COO of the Afford Anything show with Paula Pant and also co-hosted the Invest Anywhere series with Paula. She's also the coordinator of the Your First Rental Property course, which is how I know her. Sunitha is a professional speaker, passionate about financial empowerment, and has appeared on platforms like FinCon, Economy, Bigger Pockets, and many, many more. What I admire about Sunitha is her mindset to tackling hard things. Tombilio always says, toughen up buttercup, which means face the hard things, go get what you want. And I feel like Sunitha embodies that energy a thousand percent. So I'm really excited for this conversation. Welcome to the show, Sunitha. Thanks for having me and thanks for your kind words. That gives me the warm fuzzies. (laughs) So you have an incredible background. I remember on our first phone call, you mentioned you had lived in Australia because I also lived in Australia for a few years. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, that's interesting. So I went to like, I think I Googled you afterwards. And I was like, oh, oh stop me. <laughs> I was like, and she was like doing real things. And I was just like in the Women's Tennis Association, she went to the Olympics. What? So I did stalk you and I was very impressed. Oh, thank you. Well, I find you very impressive with your background at all the financial institutions and your education. So that means a lot to me. Well, I think today what I really want to cover is definitely like, you know, that background, your real estate investing, but I feel like you also have this mindset of like resiliency that I really want to kind of explore with you because I think that's what's going to be really valuable to the audience. At the top of your website is a quote and you say, financial freedom is freedom. Walk me through what that means for you. Like what inspired that quote? Yeah, so... I believe our money journeys are influenced from our experiences when we are very young. And my real estate journey was really heavily influenced by my relationship with money. And my view of money was cemented when I was super young because I grew up in a home that was ruled by domestic violence. And the thing with domestic violence is there are all kinds of mechanisms that a perpetrator will use to keep their victim 
in the place that they want them, which is in the home where they can continue to have power and control over them. And people talk a lot about aspects of it, like social isolation, like you can't talk to your friends or, or the survivor, the, their victim, the perpetrator's victim cannot talk to their friends, their family, et cetera, to ask for help. You know, they talk about all these different types of control, but one of the things that isn't discussed as frequently is financial control, which is also considered economic abuse. And that's where the perpetrator really controls their victim's supply of income, of money, um, whether it's controlling bank accounts, whether it's taking the money from them directly or showing up at their job, making their victim unable to hold down employment. And so when I toggle back and forth between victim and survivor, I believe the correct term is survivor. But when you talk about it in relation to the perpetrator, like it's, the victim makes a little bit more sense. But however you want to call them, it is very difficult for this survivor to leave when they don't have any funds, especially if there are children involved, et cetera. And so the household that I grew up in, my father was the perpetrator. And one of the big things that I grew up hearing, one of the very common phrases was, what's your mom going to do? She can't do anything. Mm. And that meant she had no options because we couldn't afford to leave. She couldn't afford food. She couldn't afford to put a roof over her head, let alone the, the heads of my brother and I, right? And so then what are your options? If she's already socially isolated. She doesn't have money. Like maybe a shelter, maybe foster care for us. And in many ways, in those situations, the devil you know is better. So that was the phrase that I heard a lot growing up. And I learned to equate lack of money to lack of options. And so the flip side of that is that I equated having money, having your finances in order to freedom. Mm. And so fast forwarding a whole bunch of years after I graduated undergrad, I got a job in the defense industry. I was in like their leadership management program. And I thought I was doing a really good job. I was doing things that others in my cohort weren't doing things like making recommendations to leadership and getting getting my rec my recommendations as a new hire adopted on a company-wide level. And this is like a large multinational company. And then I found out, one, that I wasn't being paid as much as others in my cohort. I was being paid the lowest. And then in a lunch conversation with my rotation manager, his feedback to me was, we know you're good at things, but we don't know what they are. And I was like... I've had several performance reviews that have gone well. Like, I, I don't understand, you know, but in that moment, like, it was like a lot of things kind of just hit me at once, you know, as you mentioned, like I had a career before that, you know, I was a successful athlete. I'd given up a lot to reach that level of success. And I had to start all over again with a sixth grade education, put myself through college. I sacrificed so much. And then I'm sitting across from this person who I mean, this is, he's good at what he did, but this is what he did, you know? <laughs> like, does that make sense? And I was like, how, how is this even happening? Also, in the back of my mind, I was like, how dare you? Yeah, like, <laughs> That's not relevant. What I've done, like, how dare you? Yeah, yeah I like, I am capable. I am competent. I've done great things at different stages, and I've done great things for this company. But the biggest thing that I felt was a feeling of being trapped. I realized that even though my, my situation was different from my mother's, 
I had put all of my eggs into one basket, and that was the basket of the company that I worked for. And I felt those limitations. And I decided at that point that that was not in my best interest to rely on a company to recognize my worth, reward me accordingly. And those rewards would define much of my life. Like time and money are two of our biggest constraints. And they, companies, our jobs run those. So I decided I really. I needed to not be that person who put all of our eggs in one basket. And I needed to continue to do well, but I also needed to take care of myself in a different way. And so that was how, after a lot of researching and podcasts, I eventually stumbled onto real estate investing, thankfully. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that um, about your background. But also, I think a lot of people are starting to draw that same parallel that you drew around. It's not, it's absolutely not the same as being in, you know, an abusive situation. But there is a sense of somebody else has a lot of control over my ability to do the things I want to do. And it doesn't always feel, it's, it's comfortable, right? There's a paycheck, there's always going to be mm-hmm. a paycheck. But at the same time, there's a, you're sacrificing something to get that comfort. Absolutely. I mean, there's always a trade-off with every decision you make, right? With, with a job, you are losing a little bit of like the autonomy, but you do get some sort of steadiness. There's a caveat to the steady. So there's like a little asterisk because it's steady until the powers that be don't want it to be steady anymore, yeah. right? And even with entrepreneurship, you can influence more the journey, but there's a little bit more volatility and there are challenges on that end as well, you know? And so even though real estate investing is the best thing that could have happened to me, I will say that it's a journey that you want to think through before you embark on it because it can be really tough. And even though it is the best thing that's happened to me, it has been very challenging on my life and like my relationships, and my mental health, you know? So it's something to, to consider carefully. Mm-hmm. Those challenges are definitely something I want to ask about later in the conversation. Because one of the reasons I started this podcast was because people don't talk too much about the, the challenging parts. They don't talk about the effect of real estate on your mental health, for example. What happens when everything hits the fan and a tenant calls because a light bulb broke and you're just like, I swear to God. I mean, I wish they call me because the light bulb broke. Usually my problems are so much bigger. (laughs) I'd be so so happy if that was the reason. (laughs) I've had those calls where you're like, oh boy, okay. Which of those things am I going to deal with first? Or am I just going to cry first and get that out of the way? (laughs) So let's start with the moment when you're signing papers for your very first rental property. You've gotten to this place because there was a lot of introspection. You had that moment with your boss and you were like, something has to change. You do the work and now you're here. What are you feeling as you're signing those papers? It was just so weird. I think I felt a little bit numb. It's like, I was just, I was just, it's just surreal, you know? And you're kind of like, is this really happening? Am I really doing this? Like, am I really wiring over my entire life savings for this? Like, for this, of which I have no knowledge, nobody around me has any knowledge. I just read books for two years, and I hope the books weren't lying. So, <laughs> you know, there were some nerves, but I think the bigger thing that I was afraid of was not trying because mm. I could not see myself 10, 20 years down the road living the same life and never having tried anything else. Mm. It would be so much regret. And so, you know, if this doesn't work, it doesn't work. And if I lose my money, I lose it. But at least I try to give myself another option and I can make back that money down the road. Definitely not ideal. I come from like a very financially scarce mindset due to my background. So like 
that's definitely not a path that like I was allowing my mind to go down the, the path of losing the money, but that was the truth. I could get it back. And so, yeah, the risk of regret was like a bigger risk to me. That's interesting because for a lot of people, the risk of losing the money is the bigger risk. Yeah, but I mean, like, okay, so like, I think that house at that time was like 90K, whatever. I had to put like 25% down. And then with like repairs and stuff, I can't remember, maybe it was like 35,000 all in. That was an enormous sum of money to me at that point. I'd never had that much money of my own in my life in one place. But yeah, so then what? Like, if I, if I, if I lose it, I work another two years, three years to save that back up again hopefully less because hopefully my career would be like, I'd be earning more, but like that versus thinking about being 55 and still working the same job, giving up weekends or being, I don't know, in my forties and having a family not being able to come home in time for dinner or having to answer emails while at a baseball game or like, this just, that's just not, that wasn't it. Mm. Something I've also heard you talk about is, at the time, you were very intentional in trying to buy in higher income areas and you mm-hmm. had wanting good assets in a stable area, even though it would give you a lower return compared to, I think you mentioned your friends were buying like, you know, they were making a lot more money or getting more cash out of their properties, but they weren't necessarily in areas that you wanted to invest in. This episode is sponsored by the Herfirst House community called Fireplace. You can learn more about the community by going to herfirsthouse.org. My goal for the podcast is to get people who say, hey, because of Herfirst House, I felt confident buying a home. I felt confident buying an investment property. And listening to the podcast episodes will help you start to build those muscles. But I also feel that community is really going to be where it's at in terms of actually starting to feel comfortable taking some of the great information you're going to learn on the podcast and putting it into action and also having the support from everyone around you to be able to do that. I wanted Fireplace to get to that campfire essence where there's comfort, there's warmth, and if you're with the right people, there's vulnerability and a chance to see yourself in a different light. Once you're in, we have some really great resources. You can hop on a call with me and everyone else in the community, ask any questions you have, hear what other listeners like you are up to in their own journeys. You get vetted list of resources I personally attended, read, or used to grow my portfolio, access to trainings from experts, maybe even special private community sessions with guests who come on the show. For our brand new podcast, we are starting small, which means that the first few members in the Fireplace community will really get that support and undivided attention. But we are excited that the community is going to be the strength of this podcast and it's really going to drive the why behind Her First House. So check it out, herfirsthouse.org. I'm curious about how you learned that because I only intentionally understood the difference between or the importance of the area you're buying in. When I sat across the table from Pete Fortunato, who is almost 80, I think Pete is almost 80, and he's been investing since before I was alive. And he sat me down and he was like, let me tell you, you want to buy a good house in a nice neighborhood and put nice people into it. And that will reduce the amount of stress that you're experiencing. Anything different is what leads to burnout in this game. People buy this big high-risk houses and they get super stressed out because it takes all of their time and effort to keep up with it. How did you learn that? Because I imagine like Pete didn't come to you and tell you. <laughs> <I> mean, <how laughs> no, you- I, I would have loved to pick his brain, 
But no, I think there were two aspects to that decision. One, I was doing this in order to build a better life for myself and betterment easier. I didn't want to keep trading my time for money. That's why I got into this. And it felt like while I never really bought into the it's passive income, like it just made sense to me that if I was in an area that wasn't as good where I would get people, tenants in who had to be there because of however life happened to them, I felt like that would be more difficult for me to manage in the long run than a nicer area where they're the good school districts. And frankly, like areas that have good school districts, there's so much supply, there's, sorry, there's so much demand that prices keep increasing. And for, the, for much of the population, it then becomes difficult to afford that. So the families, the parents who think ahead because they want to have give their kids the best chance, they're also going to plan ahead. They're not going to want to be kicked out of a home because they were flagrant with their money and now they can't afford a home and now their kids can't go to that school, that sort of thing. And so that was really where I wanted to be. And several of my properties in that area were by, definitely not by any means the nicest but they were in that area. And that was all that I cared about. So that was number one. And then the number two piece was I have a background in business and finance. And so like the idea of what a good investment is, is understanding value and what you're buying that others don't see. And it's seeing that value before they do. When I was looking at investing and I was on Bigger Pockets forums and I was networking, everybody was talking about the urban areas, the rural areas, but then they'd also talk about how their places got shut up and this, that, and the other. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense. And they did talk about the cash flow, but I really want to make a delineation here. What they were talking about is projected return. It's not actual return. And so they're saying, yeah, I'm buying this duplex for like $32,000 and then they're going to pay me $600 a side. And I'm like, this, what? <laughs> I, I get it. I get you're going to be making $1,000 a month. But like, I don't think that the tenants were going to like want to live in this area are going to leave you a pristine unit. You know, mm. they're just, they might not care as much, you know? And so I just like, it just, it didn't make sense to me. And also it didn't make sense to me because everybody was there. So if everybody's talking about it, the value, and I'm using air quotations for those who can't see me, because I don't think that there's like that much value in, in those assets unless you do it in like in volume in specific ways. But the value there is already discovered. So I wanted to go to a place where people weren't talking about yet. And so like, I looked at the areas that were voted like best place to live. And like some of those areas were like up north side of Indiana. And of course, you can't get into those areas. Like, best places to live but like I went into similar areas where like that weren't voted as high but still had the same school districts and still had like similar characteristics so like people who couldn't afford to be in the best areas would then go there because they would still be able to get the similar benefits for their family oh that's clever so you went where it's been rated best place to live what are the other areas that are in the same zip code or in the same school district that Uh are adjacent to that area oh interesting I've never heard anyone like say they did that so yeah there's like if you look at like money and forbes they usually come out with like these lists and that was what i looked at so wow thank you i feel smart now (laughs) 
Well, it was a clever thing. I haven't heard anybody else go. Like I was very intentional with how I like chose where I wanted to invest. Other people went on bigger pockets and were like, let's just read what everybody else is doing. And that's how you end up with a $32,000 duplex. In the well, I think like in anything in life and investing is the same way. If you're doing what everyone else is doing, you're probably doing it wrong. You know, like you need to be thinking differently. That's where the value is added, whether you're at a job, like if you're putting the same spreadsheet together, plugging the same numbers, like you're not going to get the promotion. You have to think differently and see what else is going on around the periphery and go that way. So is that still the strategy that you pursue when you're buying property now? Um, I wouldn't say necessarily. I wish I could, but now people know more. <laughs> So, so, and there's only so many areas, you know, in a town. So, like, it's really funny because I just closed on a duplex last week. And I was telling you in our first conversation, like, my first purchases were, like, in the suburbs in these areas. And then it took me six years. And then, like, the highest historic interest rates we've had in, like, two decades or whatever to get back into those areas. So, like, they got more, the word got out as, People got more experience in the rural areas, in the urban areas. Why do I keep saying rural? I mean, say urban. In the urban areas. And um, like I've had I have friends who had like their doors taken off the hinges by the tenant and they drove by and the tenant's selling the doors in the front yard and stuff like, like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like the front door to the house. <laughs> Just like a hundred dollars <laughs> for this. <laughs> And so enough stories like that circulated where people were like, okay, where does this not happen? Okay, let's go to the (laughs) suburbs. So then people were going to the suburbs and that was completely insane because like I underwrite very conservatively. So I guess partly that's my fault, but like I won't change my ways. But people were offering such high offers on these properties and suburbs where I was like, this is never going to catch. What are you doing? You know, so it was just like that moment of like where everyone was greedy kind of took over for several years. Mm. So now I would look for that if I was in a new city, but I'm pretty established with where I am. I have my teens, et cetera. And so here there aren't really any secrets as much. But at this stage, you've kind of built the team. You've built all of the efficiencies that allow you to continue to to do it. Yeah, it makes life easier. (laughs) I think that point you made about it took you six years to get back into that neighborhood where you had initially started buying. First of all, congratulations on like the latest acquisition. Thank and, you. Well, I think there's something about investing for the long term versus investing for cash flow. And that's kind of what you're hinting at, where I know it's a good area. I know it's a worthy investment. I'm gonna take as long as it takes to like get back into that area because I know that's where the like the value is. I know that's where the portfolio should be, as opposed to what's gonna cash flow tomorrow. Like how can we how do we get into that space? And it feels like yeah. there's, you're always looking at like, what is the balance between in the long term, this is a really good investment, but also in the short term, like this is going to cover the mortgage and leave me with reserves. Yeah. And that was exactly the thought process that went into this purchase because with interest rates being higher, I like to have more of the arbitrage opportunity between the mortgage and the rent that I'm getting. And this is a little bit tighter than I like it to be in this environment, but I was looking at the area and like, I have another house two blocks down and all of my houses there, like they've been, the tenants have been amazing. I found like really good tenants I could work with. And like, I know I was looking up like the city plans, the city is going to be investing like a hundred million over the next three years 
in this small stretch that's like four or five blocks to like redevelop it and build new roads. And anytime that's happened, like my life has been changed, like has been turned upside down in terms of that investment in like the best ways in terms of appreciation and long-term growth. So like, I'm like, okay, yeah, my cushion might be tight for like a year or two, but I think long-term, I don't think long-term, the biggest gains that I've seen from myself and others, like comes through forcing appreciation. You know, and that can be through the um, repairs and updates that you make. And that can also be through market appreciation. But the market appreciation usually needs additional external factors in order to really drive that price up. It can't just be like, oh, it's a nice neighborhood. Nothing else is really happening. It's just a nice place. There's like infrastructure being built. There's slippers like being forced out of certain areas. And so due to pricing, and so they've gone into other areas and they're buying stuff up and like fixing them up or people like, yeah. So it's like, it's, it's stuff like that, that you're kind of looking for. So yeah, I'm super excited for long-term. Yeah. Like that you're looking for that intentional, like economic development or. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Yes. <laughs> I remember that. So let's zoom out to um, a different moment. You are making the decision to leave professional tennis, which is something you had done for more than a decade at that stage. And and you are in the top 200. So before I even ask the question I want to ask, what does it mean from like a numbers of hours invested, effort, et cetera? What does it mean to be in the top of a sport across the world? It means you know nothing else. It means you're likely traumatized. <laughs> it means like you eat, sleep, and breathe That's sport. It means that Many times you don't have an identity outside of sport. It also means that you learn to adopt very important characteristics and skill sets at a young age, like resiliency, like long-term gratification, like strategic thinking. You know, so it's very much of a mixed bag. Like it's there are parts of life that are very tough for me now after all those years around people, around adults who were just looking to use you for their own personal gains, but also, when I turn around and I look at how those who have gone through that journey, like with me, how they're doing as adults in the real world, man, are they crushing it, <laughs> you know? And so, like, we really, there's very strong pros and very strong cons to that life. Are there things that you take from being a pro athlete that kind of inform specifically how you run your business today? Yeah, I mean, there's the concept of just working really hard. You know, um, when I started the business, I was working full time in corporate finance out in Boston, which in itself is demanding. I was also working my way through grad school, getting my master's, and I decided to start business at the same time because I am chaotic. So, like, I can't, I can't live an easy life, apparently, or just relax. Yeah, like 24 hours in a day is enough to do seven different things. Yeah, it's fine. I only need to sleep like two hours. We got this. <laughs> Who needs to eat? That's for weak people. <laughs> Overrated. Drink water. Never heard of her. <laughs> so like in the tennis world, like from the time I was very young, I heard if you're not training, if you're not working, there's a little girl in Russia who is, so you better get out there, you know? And so the same kind of competition isn't, isn't quite there in the normal world. It doesn't quite work like that. But yeah, you learn to like kind of sacrifice everything and just like go very single-mindedly after your goals. And so that was, that was very, very helpful for me. And then also just like you learn from your mistakes. You Like in tennis, you lose almost every single week and that is normal and it sucks. 
but every time you lose, you like debrief, you figure out what, what went wrong and it's quitting is an option. You like, you're like, okay, how do I do this? How do I learn this? How do I do this better? How do I get back up? You know, and how do I improve? And so that's been really beneficial in real estate investing because it is, a, it is difficult, you know, and just the six years I've been doing this, there's so many people who get in and then two years later, they're like, homie, this is not for me. And I'm just like, what do you mean it's not for you? There's so much upside. Like, I know it's hard, but like, yeah, it's just, it's just learning that like good things don't come easily. Things that are really worth it can sometimes take a lot of pain, but it is that pain that will transform your life. You know, if you just know, have to know, have to know how to deal with it and keep moving forward. I love that. I also contrast that with the YouTube guru mindset of just like jump in, bro, like so much arbitrage opportunity, so much like just, it's just so easy. Here's the, what is it, a Porsche, the Lamborghini? You oh just, God, that makes me want to vomit. It's hilarious to me because when you sit with actual real estate investors, you're like, let me talk to you about pain and difficulty and doing hard things. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you, it, it is so irresponsible to not mention that because there is so much you have, you have to sacrifice. There's nothing in life that comes without sacrifice. There's no such thing as a free lunch. You know, and that is not to say it isn't worth it because it absolutely is, but you're not going to get it easily. And those Porsches and Lamborghinis don't come soon. Like real estate is not buying a lotto ticket. You have to stick with it for years and years to really see that accumulation that will truly impact your bank account. Absolutely. So there's a poem by Hafiz and it goes, first the fish needs to say something ain't right about this camel ride and I'm feeling so damn thirsty. And, and what it means is that there has to be an awakening before change. There has to be a sense of like, something just isn't working. And why do I feel so uncomfortable? And I feel like with you, I see this thread of like you looking around and going, this doesn't feel right. Like, it. <laughs> like this is so weird. But it felt like you did that with tennis. You did that with the corporate world. And I like, I, I study how people make financial decisions for a living. So I'm always fascinated. I'm always fascinated by this process of like deciding to change. So what was the process like for you of making that decision to leave tennis, but also the corporate world? And was it the same process? Was it different? That's a really good question. But like, I'm gonna go on a side tangent really quickly because <laughs> I found this funny. I saw this this morning. It was a quote in Forbes that I actually saved a long time ago, and it said something like. To understand the path of an entrepreneur, you have to look at a juvenile delinquent. They both look at something, say, this isn't working and screw it. I'm going to do it my own way, <laughs> which kind of goes along with what we're saying. <laughs> so, yeah, the paths were pretty similar in some ways. So in both, I felt like I think there was a little bit of a feeling where I didn't feel like I could reach my true potential. Hmm. So within the tennis world, um, around the, I retired in 2009, and I had my best year to date in 2008, and I was doing really well, but I didn't have any money. I didn't have any family connections. I was just like scraping by, driving two hours to go hit with someone and trying to call that practice. Like it was like such like a journeyman kind of approach, and I never really should have gotten ranked as high as I did with this with that like paperclip approach, you know, just like gluing, super gluing stuff together, trying to make it work. I knew I needed money to invest in like real coaching, like better physical training, a therapist to put my body back together after like all the long matches and like abuse, like it took all the, all the beating. And it was 2008, like the recession was taking place. Like 
company sponsor athletes, but that's done on discretionary income and companies were struggling. Like no one's going to sponsor an athlete at that time. And so I realized like, okay, I have a couple options here. I can stick with playing the sport and keep doing what I'm doing, but I'm not going to reach my potential, which in my mind was mediocrity, you know, and I, I knew I was destined for more. I wasn't going to settle for less than that. And so I was like, if I can't reach my potential, like I'm not going to be here and stick with it because I'm afraid. Like that is to me, that is something I would regret and to admit to myself that that's what I was doing would just be like humiliating, you know? And I was like, I know I can do better. So I'm going to go somewhere else and actually try like to live up to my potential. And so like, that was the thought process that had me leaving the sport. And then within corporate, like I talked about that moment where I kind of felt trapped, you know? And even before that life was good. Life was easy. Like, for the first year or so after I graduated college, it was like the first time in my life that I wasn't like working around the clock or holding three different jobs, you know, because when I was training and playing, I was, I was on the clock all the time. Every decision I made had to be in pursuit of excellence in my sport. And then after I quit, I didn't have money. So I was bartending nights into the early morning, waking up early morning, teaching tennis, going to like community college and going to like a different school, just like working all the time. And so it was nice. It was good. I finally got to like have friends and have a social life and be like, all right, Wednesday, sure. Let's go get drinks at the bar. Why not? That was so new to me. But at the same time, it was like, I don't know, man, like I'm leaving this nine to five and I'm like, I guess today was a good day. Did I do good things today? I don't sure. You know, like, but I just had like this feeling that there was like something more, like I could do more, but it just, like it just wasn't fitting in the corporate world. And then I had that conversation with my manager and yeah, it wasn't until like I got stretched by real estate and like pushed and like forced to come up with new solutions and constantly being challenged. I really started feeling like, Oh, this is interesting. This is fulfilling for me. And also it's fulfilling because you get the opportunity to do good in the world. Like you control people's housing. And so being a good landlord, like it is, so gratifying to be able to help people you know there's like I've had tenants who've been with me for like seven years at this point or six years and they haven't always made rent on time like during COVID one was a waitress with a small kid and she got COVID and she's like well I have to isolate for two weeks and then hopefully I'm okay and can go back to work that if I can't work for half the month that means I can't make rent and I was like like, I hope you're not screwing with me, like, but let's find a way to like make this work, you know? And like, she got back on her feet and then another one lost her father and then fell into a deep depression after that and lost her job. And she had, she also had a child to take care of. And that took like a solid two years where like, I changed the dates on like the lease and she was almost always late. And I was like trying to walk the line between being understanding, but also like, don't take advantage of me. You know, and so sometimes waiting fees, sometimes not, not just to be like, I'm trying to help it. Like, this needs to be taken care of. And so with all of them, like, I work things out. Like, life happens to everyone. And so it's just, it was really, it was really gratifying to be able to help them through some of the situations where I know, like, other people, I mean, it was hard for me. Like, how am I going to pay the mortgage? <laughs> you know, like, it's a little bit hard to come up with multiple mortgages when the business model is bent on, is, it consists on getting the rent. So, yeah, that's fulfilling. I agree. Um, I was thinking of when you were talking, I was thinking about the very first time I went into the first property I had bought. And at that stage, it had been occupied for about two years by the same set of tenants that I had never seen it in person because I bought it like long distance. So this was the first time I 
was finally able to like travel down and see it. And, you know, when you buy a, an investment property, you're buying like dollars and cents and like, you know, some planks and a roof. It's like in your mind, it's like, what is the, it's, it's all about the numbers. It's all about that spreadsheet. And then you go into the house and like, you see that people have made it into a home. There's like, mm. as he had built his son a bed. There was like toys all over the place. She was having another baby. It's like, whoa, there's an actual family living here. And this is their actual house. Like this is their life. This is their memory. This is everything. Yeah. It's amazing. Like to you, to me, it's like, oh, those numbers on a spreadsheet to them. It's like, this is home. A beautiful mm. family here. And I just like, to your point, it was incredibly fulfilling and it just kind of really drove home. Like, wow, this is more than just the investment side of things. Like, this is powerful. You're change, you could be changing generational narratives here. Mm-hmm. Like what you're doing. Yeah, 100%. Like, if sometimes, like, you're not understanding that someone has fallen on hard times and they will get it back together. Like, what do you do? You put them through eviction court, then they can't get housing anywhere else, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you can completely change things for the worst for them. So it's like really important to to do the right thing and to help people out as much as you possibly can. So going back to this process of making hard decisions, if we were to like codify that process, if somebody comes to you and is like, I've been a tailor all my life, I'm thinking about doing something different, I want to go back to school, what would you say to them? Like walk them through that process of like, here's how you decide if this makes sense to do or not. God, that is so hard. Um, I think the first thing, <laughs> I think the first thing that I would keep at the forefront of my mind is to stay humble and to stay hungry. You know, everybody. There's a point in time where almost everybody has to start over in some way, whether it's at a new job or what have you. And you have to be eager and hungry, whatever it is, to like get ahead in that area. You know, and you have to be humble. Like you are starting over there are going to be things that are, you're going to be like, should this is beneath me or whatever, but nothing can be beneath you. Like you just, and the other thing is like, if you think like that, if you aren't hungry or you aren't humble, it makes the situation you're in when you're starting over a lot more difficult. And then you end up wasting emotional energy on that and trying to figure it out. Like, like, Oh God, I shouldn't be here. And some of that's normal. Some of that's going to happen, but you made the decision because the other alternative didn't work. And now you have to make this work. So you just have to like stay focused on that and just keep pushing forward. It's also beginning, Stephen Covey, beginning with the end in mind, right? Like if you, if the current path isn't working, why isn't it working? And what does the new path look like? And you just need to stay focused on that end. Like what does that end look like? And what do I need to do to get there? I love that. That was very helpful. Oh, good. (laughs) Thank you. So moving back to real estate. I was looking at the stats you have of your properties um, on your website, and I love the transparency that you have on those stats because not a lot of people do that. So in one property, you sold for $102,000 profit with 56K invested into it. With another one, you sold for 12K profit with 16K invested into it. Now, there's a difference between $102,000 and $1,000. But people often think that like real estate is just paycheck after paycheck. They don't understand that like the feast of famine, like nature of it. But what I'm curious about is what does a good deal look like for you at this stage? Yeah. So there are different ways that an investment can affect your bank account. And so I try to hit as many of those different ways as possible. Hey, quick reminder. All the content you hear on the podcast and in the Fireplace community 
are all for your entertainment and education only. It is not financial advice. Please get advice from a competent financial professional, especially if you need expert help for your very specific situation. Okay, on to the episode. So one of the big things that's talked about that I want to get out of the way, like right away, depreciation. You get that on every property. So like, let's not get bogged down by talking about like the tax benefits, et cetera. Like, that's just a thing. Obviously cash flow. So I want it to cash flow if my rent is basically like the lowest rent in the area. Because I mean, who knows what could happen down the road, but I can always get a tenant if my rent is low enough. And so if I do need to drop it down to that rent because inflation is crazy high, people can't afford stuff. It's winter, it's December, no one's moving in December. Like if I need to drop the rent at that time to get someone in, I can do that and I can still make money. And then there, we talked about this a little bit before, there's different forms of appreciation. So like there's forced appreciation. I want to know that there are specific renovations and updates I can make that will increase the property's value significantly more than the money I put in to make those renovations. I want to know that the area is improving so that over time market appreciation will take over and I'm just not reliant on like it being a good neighborhood. There are other factors at play that will draw people to the area over time. And um, I think the last thing is just built in equity. So making sure that I buy the property for less than it's worth. So that let's say I get into rehab and I discover that the sewer line needs to be late, like relayed out or whatever, you know, and that's going to be like $60,000, which isn't totally out of the realm of possibility, then I can still sell it at a profit and it'll be okay. So I just want to make sure that no matter what happens, I am limiting my downside and that there is an upside. So you're looking at all of the different elements that make up a real estate kind of deal, right? Depreciation, Mm -hmm. ability to drive forced appreciation, the cash flow potential, and then also buying it under market so that you can sell it at a profit. Are all of those things equally important to you? Or are there some things where you're like, if it doesn't have this baked into the deal, I'm walking away? Mm, that's a really good question. I will not sacrifice cash flow. And I will not sacrifice built-in equity. I will also not sacrifice forced depreciation. It needs to be worth more. I guess if I had to, I could sacrifice a little bit of the market appreciation if I had all the other pieces, because at least like I still know it'll be worth more than it was when I got it. And my net worth is positively impacted by the work that I've done. Okay. So as long as you know that you can put the work into the house, sell it at a profit, and you're getting it a little bit under market, you're Mm -hmm. you're comfortable? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So at the stage, you own about 12 doors. Is that, that's right, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. You own 12 doors. And of that portfolio, what is a property that you're most excited about? So that would be the last house pack that I did. I really love that home. It meant a lot to me because it was the first duplex that I house packed. And it was the first time in my adult life that I could live in an area that I wanted to live in and I could afford to live there. For that, I made a lot of decisions to save money and to make my life a little bit financially easier. And then I also house packed a single family home, which had a pretty like rough journey. And so I was really excited to get into this area where I could house that. I could also live on my own and still have like my mortgage mostly taken care of. And it was like a mile from like a paved running trail. And it was two miles from like two of my really good friends. And so like I could run and see them at any given time, you know, and it was like super close to downtown. It just, and it was like this adorable house, like uh, super old, but 
it was like entirely brick, original hardwoods we built in that just had so much character. And the area was improving, so there was that too. And so I moved into one side, fixed it up, rented it out, moved into the other side, fixed it up too. And then in the process of fixing it up, like there was, it's just like this really big house. And so when I was originally walking it, I was like, oh, there's so much opportunity here. Like the attic is massive on each side. The basement is massive on each side. And I was just idly like talking through things with my friends. I was like, wouldn't it be cool? I could like turn the upstairs into a living unit, like the attic. I could do the same thing with the basement. And it turns out like not all of that is feasible. But what I did do was I did finish the basement on one side and it turned it into an Airbnb. And that like, I essentially was the GC for that project, which was a huge project and a massive learning experience and um it turned like it's a place that I'm really proud of and then because of the fact that the bottom was an Airbnb I really needed to turn the top into an Airbnb because of how like sound leaks and they shared an HVAC unit so I have to control the temperature in order to make sure everyone's happy and that sort of thing. So was it that you couldn't have long-term tenants in the top unit and have people coming and going from the bottom unit? Yeah, or I can't really have a long-term tenant in the bottom unit. They're not going to be happy long-term, you know, because there's just too much sound that comes through. And if someone is a a long-term tenant up top, they're not going to be happy with me being like, I control the temperature, you know, but like short-term, both work. So that was how I rationalized that. And then there's so many large Airbnbs in the area with people turning their homes and whatever into Airbnbs. I was like, what is my competitive advantage? I wanted to do something like really interesting and unique. And so I turned the upstairs into a themed Airbnb and um, I call it Burton's Bungalow. It's entirely nightmare before Christmas themed, including a six foot, more than six foot tall Jack Skellington in, in one corner of the living room. And there's like Christmas lights hung from the ceiling and there's multiple Christmas trees and every night there's a light show and it's just like so ridiculous and over the top but it's like so magnificent at the same time and so that's been like my baby and so it's been a tough year with the Airbnb market 2023 you know there's a lot of supply coming on the market so it's a little bit tough and it was like my first time with a big Airbnb I had like two smaller units so I like the pricing and the strategy, but with the big unit, it was a different, like entirely different ball game. So it took me a little bit of time to like kind of figure it out. But yeah, like it's been that's what I'm like really excited to see about to see more people come through there. Like people who book there end up really loving it, you know, because they're there for like the experience and it's so fun. So I'm just excited to like continue to grow that and share that with more people. That's awesome. And what is it? Is it like three bedrooms, two bedrooms? What is what is the kind? It's three bedrooms, two bathrooms. It's like that fifteen to seventeen hundred square feet. So it's like pretty big, yeah. Like all stainless steel appliances in the kitchen. Like it's like the kitchen's black and white, <laughs> like shades of gray. It's just yeah, I love that home. <laughs> it sounds amazing. That was another part of the investing journey because I really loved living there, but I just had a bigger dream for the place and something that. I wanted to do creatively and to fulfill me. So it was like a little bit sad to move on and to not live there anymore. But like, I don't know, I think that's also some part of the journey that like you have. Sometimes you do get attached to properties and you just have to learn to like make those decisions. I was also reflected on, you said you moved into one side and then you renovated the unit that you were living in. And then you moved into the other side and did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is interesting because I feel like most people would move into one side, renovate the other side, and then move out and renovate the, the one they just vacated. Yeah, well, I didn't have money to do that. Like, I couldn't, like, I needed, 
I was lucky in that it was mostly cosmetics initially. So I could get in and I could paint and I could learn to tile the kitchen and do stuff like that and swap out light fixtures. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I didn't do, I ended up adding a bathroom and doing some technical work. And for that, I hired out, but like the cosmetics. Yeah, I, I did all of that. And yeah, I had to owner occupy it. Like I had to occupy it and both sides were tenanted when I bought it. And so I had to have, I paid one side to move out and they needed, they wanted a King's ransom. <laughs> Which is fair, very smart on their on their part. But yeah, so in, with one side moving out, I couldn't afford to renovate the side that was unoccupied. So my final question is, in a quote that you had in one of your other interviews, you talked about not feeling like you had a purpose after you left tennis. And I'm I'm reading this doctorate in Phillips' book. It's called The Garden Within. And she talks about purpose as like this connection to like service every day. Like, you know, today she helps her kids with the homework and that's a purpose. Tomorrow she goes like, please, I don't do stuff in her garden. That's a purpose. It's the idea that like it's every day looks a little bit different and there might not be like this big grand purpose that everybody has. But I was wondering for you, how do you think about your purpose these days? I find a lot of fulfillment with the real estate, you know, like I guess to build a life that is challenging and interesting and unique and helps me financially sometimes. <laughs> no, it does help me a lot. Of but then, like I said before, like I get to give good housing to people. I get to help them. And then with the Airbnbs, I get to give people a fun experience. You know, like people like to take vacations and you want, you want them to have a good experience. So that's like really fulfilling to me. And like combining that also with my day job afford anything. Like that was a brand that I liked a lot long before I joined the company. And so like I find purpose in, in like this dual kind of path of improving my life, building more autonomy into my life so that when, when the time comes, like I can be work optional or cut back if I want to, you know, when I have a family and stuff, but then also do good in the world as I'm doing that. I really like the term work optional. I haven't heard that before. That's a really good way to describe it. I think there's like freedom that comes from that, you know, like you, you, you get to do it. You do it because you want to, not because you have to. Yeah, I will say I know a lot of real estate investors who hit their like financial freedom number a long time ago, and they're all still investing in real estate. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's, it's an addiction. 100% addiction. Yes. All right. Thank you so much, Sunitha. Where can people find you? Mostly on Instagram these days. Um, so my handle, my personal handle is Suni, S-U-N-I underscore R-A-O underscore I check Burton's bungalow. Burton's bungalow is the IG handle for my Airbnb. So that's B-U-R-T-O-N-S, Burton's, and then bungalow as you would spell it. I probably check that more often than my personal. And then I do have a website, perfectpropertygroup.com. Uh, awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is fun. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember to check us out on herfirsthouse.org and join the community for access to bi-monthly calls with me and everyone else in the group, as well as loads of cool resources. Also, like, share this episode with two people and tell me what you liked or learned from the episode by tagging me on Instagram at real estate with Etty. That's real estate with E-T-I. We'll see you in the community and on the next episode.